Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Mind and Child, which offers a video-based Parenting 101 course designed by two child psychologists to teach the core parenting skills every family needs, especially with kids 12 and under. And as a dad of two young adults, I'm here to tell you that this would have been amazing about 10 years ago. Parenting 101 is ideal for families who are struggling with behavior issues, as well as for families who are doing okay but just want to tune up. In fact, one of the developers of this course, Dr. Aaron Averett, was a guest on this podcast in May of 2022. Learn more and get the course at mindandchild.com. That's mindandchild.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Street Volkswagen online at streetvw.com and to Leslie Massey of Farmers Insurance. Leslie is a past podcast guest, so if you want to go back and listen to the September 12th episode, you can meet her. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm's latest issue at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Todd McLeese. Todd arrived in Amarillo after a lengthy tech career based in Milwaukee. He's worked in management consulting, he's co-founded and sold a couple of startups, and he spent more than a decade in leadership for PKWare, a Milwaukee tech company founded by the guy who pioneered the zip file format, a format I use all the time, by the way. But now Todd is in Amarillo, where he's the managing partner of Innovation Outpost, and this is a relatively new nonprofit that helps local people attain new skills and which prioritizes people from traditionally underserved communities. It's a really exciting project, and it evolved from ideas that started at Amarillo College. I think you'll find it just as interesting as I have. Here's Todd McLeese. Todd McLeese, welcome to the Amarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jason. Thanks for for having me. Well, my pleasure to have you. I I know there's a lot of things that we can talk about, but I want to start the way I do with all my guests and ask you why you're here. So what brought you to the Amarillo area? Yeah, well, there's so many reasons. Um, so I met some folks at uh, at AC uh, a few years ago in St. Louis when I was speaking there, and they invited me down to do a talk at Amarillo College, and then they invited me back. And uh, as I got to learn a, a lot more about Amarillo College and about the region, it just became obvious to me that this is a place where I needed to spend the next I don't know, maybe the last decade of my career. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. But that's how I envision this. I think there are so many incredible assets in the region, AC being one of the chief among those. Okay. Uh, Before we talk about what that looks like right now, tell me, you know, if this is the last decade of your career, tell me about the previous decades of your career. So yeah. what, I mean, what what have you been doing? What were you doing when you were speaking at the, sure. at the conference? Yeah, I, I kind of grew up in the software industry, but not in Silicon Valley, in Milwaukee, uh, okay. in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is very much um, historically, you know, thought of as a blue collar manufacturing, beer city, et cetera. Yeah, people and, don't think of it as a tech hub. That's right. Yeah, exactly. But one thing that was invented in Milwaukee was the zip file format. So okay. I grew up in that company. I learned a lot about what it took to grow companies and led the teams that did that there. Uh, and then we sold that company to private equity. And I played around in startups in in uh, the technology space and the web space in the, in the 90s. Um, but it was really the 12 years I spent working for people who had a tremendous track record, learning from them and so forth, not only about 
software and product management and things like that, but really the the pragmatic aspects of going to market with uh, solutions that work for people and work for companies. Okay. Um, so I, I did that for, um, we played that out, sold that company to private equity twice. And then I had the opportunity, I certainly had to keep working from the day I left PKWare, but, um, but I did have the opportunity and the luxury of finding projects that I was really interested in working on. And for the last 10 years or so, I've done that. And Oftentimes, that's been about digital transformation. Hmm. Because of the roots in Wisconsin, it lent itself to um, to advanced manufacturing yeah. and helping those industries with cybersecurity initiatives and major digital transformations and so forth. And that ranged from, to me, you know, the things I like to work on scale up and down. So I love to work in small companies. I grew up, my dad was very entrepreneurial. I grew up in a family that owned custard stands and cellular okay. stores, mobile phone stores and things like that. And so he was always an entrepreneur. And so I love the the small company spirit of companies that want to grow. But then I ended up working for, you know, the largest electronics manufacturer in the world too on projects. So what was that? Who was uh, that? Foxconn. So, okay. so Taiwanese Which, company. Yeah, makes a lot of the iPhones. Does all the, I, a lot of the iPhones, about 40% of the electronics in the world. Yeah. And in a plant in Juarez, just over the El Paso border, they make a hundred percent of the Dell and HP uh, servers and desktop computers. And there's about 12,000 employees there. And so they're uh, the chief transformation officer for Foxconn worldwide runs that facility. And he was my client. So okay. I, I worked for him for around three years. Where uh, did you grow up? Milwaukee. All right. So, uh, so went, went to um, grew up in Milwaukee um, between my family and my, my wife still works for the Chamber of Commerce in Milwaukee. And uh, uh, when I was a kid, I, I worked for the Milwaukee Bucks. I, w- I was the I was an NBA mascot for right. nine years of my life. Now that's um, a, that's an interesting story. <laughs> those weren't um, recent years, were they? Not, those no, the not recently. I, I I used to get invited uh, until about ten years ago. I got invited to the throwback uh, okay. events, but but no was longer. Was that before the trampoline dunking by mascots and all no, that stuff? No, I broke or? both my wrists one time okay. doing a trampoline dunk. So you and, you've done so, that stuff. Yep, repelled from the ceiling in the dark and things right. like that. So. Um, Maybe we should just talk about that. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> that was a fun, a fun, very, but very different life. Went to school in California uh, at Santa Clara, came back home and um, got involved in technology companies. I mean, were you that. interested in that? Does, does that feel like a, a career that makes sense knowing what your your skills were or your interests were, you know, when you were a kid? Technology I mean, or yeah, mascot? Technology or mascot, <laughs> either of those. Now let's talk about technology. Yeah. Well, on the mascot thing, you know, Somebody once asked me, seri- like seriously, looked me in the eye and go, why do you do that? Like, why are you wasting your time, right? And the reality was, you know, at their height, there are 18,000 people there that are smiling and cheering. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not a bad place to spend uh, a couple of hours. I can see know? the appeal of that sort of job. I, yeah. I would make that decision too, I think. Technology always appealed to me. I don't think I really caught the bug because I went to school in, you know, Silicon Valley and San, at Santa Clara. It was very early, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So, you know, when I moved home, it, I, I think it was really just the opportunities that revealed themselves um, that they were really always more entrepreneurial in nature. Not mm-hmm. that I was starting my own company necessarily, but people inviting me to be a part of a leadership team. Um, I always kind of considered myself somebody who could, 
take something from zero to a six or a seven. Okay. When I joined PK, where it was as VP of product management, they had no product management function at the time. It was, you know, figure out how to build a product management function, even though I didn't have a track record in that, in doing so. And then I've figured out in about 18 months or they figured out that I was really bad at that part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they offered me the opportunity to go run our uh, international offices and we moved to London for okay. about six years really took advantage of that opportunity. So I love uh, things related, not just to technology, but to growth. So finding ways to help companies maybe break through innovation or augment the business model, diversify revenue, things like that. Those are the things that really get me excited. I'm I'm interested in the fact, you know, before we get to, to what you're doing in Amarillo, just having, you having been in the technology world for as long as you have, that it's it's a... An industry that goes in cycles, that has boom periods and bust periods, really exciting times, times when everybody's kind of regrouping because, you know, the stock market crashes in the early 2000s or all those kinds of things. And you've like you've been in it. Do you ever think, okay, I I got into this at the right time. Do you ever think maybe I should have come in later? Maybe I wish I'd done it earlier. So so the first company. So I was I was working for a company that was essentially focused on uh, professional AV solutions. So distance learning classrooms, things like that. And the CEO of that company asked me to start another company with him uh, while he maintained ownership of the first one. And we literally had to sell that company in 2001 because we could not put the money together for a next round. Uh, because of the the tech bubble burst, yeah, right? and you were not selling it at a premium, I imagine. Right? That's right, exactly. So in two thousand one, then I uh, joined PKWare, same investment banking firm, handled both transactions. So they kind of just threw my hat in the ring there. Um, we grew that company rapidly for uh, eight years, and then we sold the company in oh eight oh nine with the financial crisis. Okay. That was the first sale. So I would say wrong time to sell the company, but you know the CEO who today is. In his mid-80s, he was just done. And he had had four previous wins, big wins and so forth. So um, so then I was uh, uh, stuck around and uh, worked for the individual who started the company Monster.com. Right. Uh, he, he was the CEO at PKWare at the time. And then we had another uh, run with private equity and, and it worked out well. So both of those were good transactions from, a, from my perspective. I don't know that it because of the timing that they maximize yeah. the opportunity like you saw in the years that followed. It's it's more uh, maybe a matter of longevity. I mean, you you endure some of the bad periods. You get to benefit from some of the good periods. You just well, stay think, in the space, right? I think that's right. And, it, you know, when you are not uh, VC funded, when you're funded by an individual, you can make decisions to kind of hunker down, maybe cut costs, uh, play it out a little bit, maybe cut the marketing budget for mm-hmm. six or 12 months and and then catch it on the next cycle. And so I think well, those are the kinds of decisions that we made and made pretty well. So, okay. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk about your interest in Amarillo and working with Amarillo College, because I, I think people will hear your story. And number one, this is not Milwaukee. You know, it's a very different climate, different... Um, you know, atmosphere, just culturally. Uh, and and Emerald is not typically known as a, a tech hub. Yeah. Um, and so why did that land on your radar and why was it attractive to you? So I was involved early days in what is today known as the Milwaukee Tech Hub. <laughs> and um, honestly, not that different from a values perspective. The individuals here are hardworking, they're mm-hmm. family focused. I think there are many of the same qualities 
uh, up north in Milwaukee. Now, the primary difference in terms of launching an effort related to technology is there are nine Fortune 500 companies in Milwaukee and, yeah. or in Wisconsin. And so um, you can get some significant corporate support and a huge advantage out of that. Northwestern Mutual, who has a, a branch office here, they're headquartered in Milwaukee. Okay. And they really stood behind it from, from the get-go. And so I saw a lot of opportunity there, but it was very corporate-driven. Then what I started seeing as I was speaking around the country about digital transformation and future of work and future of learning, there are markets who are in much greater need. It's not even necessary to become a technology hub. It's just to find a balance between the traditional industries. How do we infuse those industries with more and more technology? You know, mm -hmm. I met with Plains Dairy with Mike Giles at Plains Dairy uh, recently, and they're highly automated at Plains Dairy, right? And so there's there's deep automation and digital transformation going on in the food and dairy, in, the beef and dairy industries already. Um, but how do you find more industry opportunities that might be adjacent to those core industries? What does that mean in terms of workforce? And the challenge, frankly, in every market, and I would say, you know, Milwaukee's about a million people, let's call Amarillo a quarter of a million people. Sure. They are very similar in terms of the element of diversity and underserved communities and severe underemployment in many cases where people are just doing the jobs they need to do to get by, mm -hmm. but they're not the jobs they really could be going, going after or okay. get building the skills. And, and today in the, where we are in Amarillo and in places like it, so small cities, because Amarillo doesn't technically qualify as rural, but of course the outlying Everything surrounding uh, us. Everything is. surrounding us is. In those communities, they, there are actually existential issues about how we move forward, right? Just are we going to stay where we are and play it out? Or are we going to find the balance between uh, what is currently working really well and what could work and the other opportunities that those, that, that presents? And those are more important issues to me to work on. Right. Tell, tell me more about the idea of underemployment, because I imagine that's something that listeners may not have heard about or have thought about. Everybody knows that the unemployment rate in Amarillo is very low. And so we see those low rates and we think, OK, we're doing great. You know, everybody's got a job. But underemployment means, yes, everybody may have a job. But yeah, but they may not be thriving. I mean, it may not be. The I best. think that's a great that's a great way to explain that is are they thriving? Isn't it an optimal job for right. them? Are they, are they creating the most economic value for themselves and for a company that they can in the re and for the region that they're capable of, right? And sometimes that might be a lack of skills that where we can fill that skills gap rather quickly and put them in a better position or on a better trajectory. And sometimes it's a, it's a member of a refugee community here, right? It might be uh, people from uh, Sudan mm -hmm. who have two master's degrees, and they're working on a line in a processing plant. Right. Or an Afghani PhD uh, who is working in a similar type of role, but has capabilities right now and just needs better connectivity to what the opportunities are. And, you know, we were just having this conversation recently with a, a group um, from the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Council. And, and, of course, you have to validate those credentials. You have to understand what their capabilities are and so forth. And so there's a lot of, I would say, one-to-one -one work, heavy lifting that has to be done. It's not 
a, you know, sweeping paradigms that really work in these cases. You have to dig in a little bit to understand individual cases in order to solve se severe underemployment. But when people are highly skilled or highly capable and they're working in jobs that they may not necessarily find fulfilling, even though they're certainly able to put food on the table mm -hmm. and make ends meet and it's honorable work and so forth, it, it's a little less purposeful. And so we see high turnover rates and yeah. high poach rates in those industries, right? I try to think of why that is. And, and there's, a, there's a practicality, I think, to just the overall attitude living here that people have a lot of skills, uh, a lot of capacity, a lot of intelligence. Um, but maybe they find a job that's a good, reliable job. And they think, well, you know, my, my dad did this all of his life, I can find something that I don't love, but I'm good at and I can do that all my life. And, and maybe the lack of, of imagination of, of what they could be doing or where their skill set could take them, like that, that practicality maybe sometimes holds us back. Yeah, I think, the, I think pragmatism is, a, is an important strength in the region um, and it can be a limiting factor, mm -hmm. right? And again, it comes down to the individual. So I can be perfectly content in, in a job like that as well. I can find purpose in that. It's honorable work contributing to the domestic food supply or the dairy supply, et cetera. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those jobs. And there are a large percentage of the people in those industries who have been there for a long time and take great pride in that work. And, they, and that's a great way to make a living for them. And hey, those are the people that built Amarillo, like into exactly. what we are and now. It's an, and it's an extremely stable industry. Right. There's, not, there's not the volatility of the technology industry. There may be some price swings for sure, right? Some difficult times, but it's much more stable. And there's value in that as well. Then there are a certain percentage of people who, if they knew what was possible in Amarillo, not because they can create a success story in some other region or in Dallas or Austin or Houston or whatever the case may be, uh, or any other surrounding state, but rather right here in Amarillo, what can they achieve? And I think part of what draws me to this opportunity is really to, and Russell uh, Lowry Hart has, has worked with me perhaps more than he thought he would have to, to, to help me understand that such a big chunk of this is for that group of people, when they wake up in the morning, can they dream differently? Can they see differently? How do we touch their heart and their mind and help them understand that those things are possible here in Amarillo, right? That you don't have to leave and then ultimately come back to raise your family. Sure. You, can be, you can contribute to this economy and to this community and find that same those same types of, of opportunities without ever leaving. Hmm. So tell me then about that opportunity for you and, and why you came here and, and the role that the Innovation Outpost is going to play over the next few years. Because yeah. I, I know the idea has evolved a little bit. And you've been part of that evolution. So kind of give listeners a, an idea of what it is. Yeah, to, to be clear, I did not come here to run Innovation Outpost. The, I came to help Amarillo College mm -hmm. with some planning with regard to the future programs and so forth and, and it sort of align their programs with the future of work. But what has evolved is the best opportunity and most rewarding opportunity of my career. And it, so Innovation Outpost is what is keeping me here and will keep me here. And to me, it's, um, it's the realization of five years of vision Right. Things that I've imagined doing have been enabled by this community and they are extremely 
executable here. And I'm not suggesting that it's easier here than other places, mm -hmm. but there's a certain spirit of um, two, two important ingredients. First of all, Russell and the team at Amarillo College have got a sense of adventure and a willingness to try things to find the solutions that work for the region. And secondly, the business community and the other members of the community who have been so important throughout the generations, um, they're willing to contribute to that vision, right, to see it happen. I don't know that that's unique in America, but you don't find it a lot of places. Okay. And it's, it's definitely present here. And so it's, it's so encouraging to be able to go fast in making that vision a reality. And, you know, in the next several months, we'll be delivering programs. And I mean, they, they are starting now. Um, we're on, actually on our third cohort. We've been going for about a year. But over the next several months, as we continue to expand the programs and the capabilities at Innovation Outpost, we're going to be bringing a lot of people into that sphere of influence where they'll be learning and dreaming and thinking differently about what's possible here in Amarillo. Okay, so give, give me the broad strokes then of what happens at Innovation Outpost. What's happening inside that building? What are these opportunities that people are getting when they sort of align with that program? Yeah, so right now um, it's possible either self-paced if you're a busy working professional or full-time 30 hours a week instructor-led sessions, um, immersive learning opportunities around digital skill building, things like data analytics and cybersecurity. And that's not to suggest that people need to you know, take that class so they can become a, a data analyst. There'll be some of that, but there's also a need for uh, people, nurses and people working in businesses to be more data aware to help inform decision making. Hmm. So it's, it's business analytics. It's not just a technical skill. Um, there's full stack coding, there's cloud computing, and there's technical project management. That's what we're executing right now. But as we move forward, we'll be talking about lab technician programs, of which there's more than 100 jobs available right now in the panhandle in companies that believe in trajectory, career trajectory. So mm -hmm. they're jobs that, you know, you can make a better living, but you can also see yourself in three years doing something even more for a, the same company or in, in a similar type of role. You can continue to grow, continue to make more money and add more value to the economy and so forth. Um, we'll be building executive admin programs, highly skilled admins. So imagine an executive admin with research skills and data visualization skills and project management skills and so forth. Um, we're doing that right now in our own team. We're building those types of skills. We, we fundamentally believe that every one of us, you, me, everybody in the region needs to be upskilling to some extent yeah. in order to continue to explore what's possible here in Amarillo. And so those are the types of, of um, programs that we're spinning up and we're always doing it. When you look at, in partnership with Amarillo College, diesel technicians, there are hundreds of jobs available. There are acute issues with regard to being able to produce enough diesel technicians in this region. There are needs for lab technicians, as I mentioned. There are uh, jobs for mechanics and technicians in this space throughout the food industry and so forth. And they're not just immediate 
needs. They are ongoing needs and growing needs throughout the panhandle in our core industries. So we want to be extremely industry aligned with the programs that we're spinning up, not just turning on programs for the sake of expanding our portfolio that doesn't result in a great workforce outcome. Right. Right. Um, so we're not sitting up in the stratosphere of Silicon Valley trying to say everybody needs to be a cybersecurity professional, but we can all agree that it would be helpful if our workforce was a little more cybersecurity aware, right? And so we have very fundamental foundational courses, for instance, that people can and, and teams can take advantage of. I, I want to give listeners an idea of, of who your students are, um, because I, I know people will hear Amarillo College and they'll think, all right, these are, you know, young people taking a 15 hour semester. They're learning a degree. Yeah. That's all they do. But that's not necessarily the case with you. You have people who are existing employees of some corporate partners and they're taking classes to level up by by gaining a, a different skill set or by refining that a little bit. It's a broad spectrum of people. I mean, it, in our first two cohorts, the age spectrum was 22 to 62. Um, if you look at Amarillo College's demographics, it's roughly 60% Hispanic and two out of three are female. Mm -hmm. For us, it's roughly 75% are Hispanic and 70% are male. Okay. So a little bit of an inverse from a gender perspective, right? Because is that because of the tech focus? I mean, that's I traditionally been a pretty male-dominated world. It, that's a contributor. I think the other contributor is short-term learning, short-term okay. outcomes, right? So I can jump in for eight weeks and have a workforce outcome, have a learning outcome. I get my industry credential. I've added value. I'm not signing up for three years, yeah. right? That sort of thing. I can work in the meantime and so forth. The group of people that we're dealing with, it is... Um, you know, formerly incarcerated, it's adult learners, it's working professionals, it's a diverse group, it's everybody. Please take to heart, like, everybody should be upskilling. Mm -hmm. And in order to increase the viability or help the economy in this region thrive, we need many more people contributing a lot more than they're able to today. Yeah. And so this, we're building upskilling programs that not only align with industry, but align with the things that people can find passion in. So they, they can do more of that. Okay, I, I do want to talk about that because in, in some sense, you know, it's a, it's a short-term project for the individuals because they're gaining a skill, they're getting a certification, you know, whatever that outcome is for them. But there's also a long-term component. And I know you've been part of those discussions. I know Dr. Lowry Hart has been part of those discussions that long-term we need in this area more skilled employees. We need people with um, with more degrees, whatever those degrees look like. And and so tell me like where this fits in with some of those longer term goals for Amarillo. Yeah, two specific ways. I think what we learned in the first two cohorts, which started a year ago, and then we executed another in the spring of 22. We learned that while it's really, you know, cool and attractive to talk about eight week, 10 week, 12 week sprints and these quick outcomes, We've now shifted our model to a year of unlimited learning. So yes, dive in for eight weeks, get that learning outcome, get the workforce outcome, but keep learning, keep skill building. I think the other big thing is that we're an on-ramp for Amarillo College and for WT, ultimately, because AC is a is a is an on-ramp for West Texas A&M, mm -hmm. right? So nearly 20% of people so far, and we think this number will continue to increase, who successfully complete our program, they subsequently enroll. It's anecdotal because the numbers are too small right now, but 
so many of those people have told me, I never knew I could learn like this. Hmm. I didn't know that I was uh, capable of learning through higher education, but now I know. So that's why they then enroll at AC. It's like their first taste of, exactly. of that sort of environment. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we've created incredible stories already. Um, last September, there's a, a guy named Alejandro, 22 years old. He had graduated from high school and he was a sod cutter for King Ranch for okay. four years, working alongside of his dad. And his dad actually encouraged him to enroll in our program. And so last October, he did that in 2021. And by December, he was double certified by Amazon AWS for cloud skills. Hmm. And by January, he had a paid internship at BOC Bank. And Alex O'Brien and BOC have been incredible champions for us. Um, they actually hired four of our folks out of that first cohort as paid interns. They've now hired all four of those individuals, and he's been promoted to software development from Software QA. So it's a it, long way from sod cutting. Ten months. Yeah. Right. And then that's not you know you're that's not necessarily the typical outcome, but he's also enrolled again in more learning as all of those individuals have, all four of those guys have, and the the reality is he's one of the people who he didn't know he yeah. could learn like that. And now he's opened up a little bit. He's much more vocal when the, you know, the first few weeks last October, he's coming in and in a parka and he was kept to himself and so forth. But when you gain confidence, it, it feeds the spirit a little bit. Right. And so you can become more aware of what's possible for you. And so I think those kinds of things, I mean, those kinds of events in people's lives uh, are really important. And for me, you know, a few years ago, um, my mom passed away. And before that happened, uh, I remember her telling me in one of our last conversations that she and my dad were really proud of everything I had accomplished in business, hmm. right? And she sure didn't mean it this way, but the in-business <laughs> uh, qualifier, qual yeah. it always sort of bothered me a little bit, like, you know. What about the other stuff? Yeah, exactly. And so... It's hard for me to not feel that part of what the reward that I'm feeling here is is doing those things. Yeah. It's making an impact in people's lives like I've never done in my career. Well, it's it's a ripple effect beyond having created an interesting product, you know, or right. exactly. um, building a company, one of those things. That there's there's an impact that, that sort of spreads, you know, once those opportunities become real for people. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I want to ask you... You know, since your first exposure to Amarillo College, and, and maybe the city itself was was an outsider's perspective, and after after meeting them at that conference and, and kind of seeing what was happening, now now you're here and you've invested in this community, you've planted here. What is special about what AC is doing? What was the thing that that really attracted you to it? I mean, it's an incredibly unique place. So I I have traveled around and and spoken with or worked with uh, various consortia of higher eds, pri primarily community colleges I, fo I have focused on. But let's call it hundreds, a few hundred mm -hmm. schools. There's such a massive difference in terms of the leadership, the speed with which they're willing to operate, right? Um, Tamara Clunas at AC would call it rapid cycle innovation, right? They are 
They are willing to try things and learn and iterate. And when you apply innovation principles to education, some really amazing things happen. And then you take that and you combine it with everything Russell and the culture represents now in terms of um, love times learning and surrounding students, the students they have, not the students they wish they had, Mm -hmm. with the support systems it, the investment that they make in supporting the students to remove barriers from what AC students experience so that they stay enrolled and complete. You can't find another community college in the country who has the demographics that they have, who have closed the equity gap, and who have gone from 19 to 64% completion in seven years. Yeah. It's stunning. And, you know, if there weren't a high-performing community college at the center of this, what I'm trying to build and and working to build every day wouldn't work because there's a certain level of trust that AC has developed. And there are some codes that they've cracked in terms of how to get outcomes as it relates to disadvantaged or underserved communities and so forth. And we're learning from and applying those principles every day at Innovation Outpost. So it's it's, again, a very pragmatic approach using, I would say, the lessons learned and best practices that AC has demonstrated. And they're a national leader. Mm-hmm. And you can't just, you know, set down uh, the investment required and execute this in any community. And when you combine that with the businesses, the leaders in the community who, once there's a little bit of validation that occurs, right, everybody's, you know, willing to give it a conversation or two. But once that that credibility is established, then they're in. And they're willing to help propagate the message and they see what's good for the region and what's good for... And when you have those two ingredients, then the rest of it's just really making the best decisions you can to help as many people as you can. And, and that last part, thinking about the community, I, you know, I, I value your perspective. I, I think... Around here, we tend to take for granted some of the things that are good, like Amarillo College. People might think, oh, it's a nice place. A lot of people mm-hmm. start there. Not knowing the the influence that they have nationally, not knowing the reputation they have outside this area. Um, I wonder if you could apply that same mindset to, to just talking about what you found here in Amarillo, you know, whether it's it's the willingness of that business community to to take some of those risks or get involved, whether it's the you know, a Goldilocks kind of size that it's the just right size for some of these endeavors to really take hold? I mean, what what have you seen here? So when you try to build a, you know, the term that we tend to shy away from is ecosystem, but when you try to build a collaborative effort in any region, in Milwaukee, for instance, um, there are always competing priorities, right? And so when you have stakeholders like Fortune 500 companies, they have very specific ideas for the workforce outcomes that they need, the gaps they need closed, the metrics they have to hit, and so forth. And that becomes the driving force. There's some of that here in Amarillo. But there's also a tremendous, a wonderful balance of greater good, right? We know that the region needs this. We know that this is great for that piece of our community and so forth. And we need that part of our community to thrive in order for the whole community and economy to move forward, regional economy to move forward. That lacks in other places. And it's so obvious. It's demonstrated to me every day with the companies that I talk to. People are very practical about what needs to be achieved here. We're not trying to 
land rockets, uh, so to speak, to use Matt Garner's term for for uh, what SpaceX is doing. What we're trying to do is find ways to leverage our incredible strengths and assets, and there are many, and then leverage the people who really believe in what we're trying to do from a collaborative standpoint. And there's certainly room for individual outcomes as well. I think you just have to put those on the table early to figure out who needs what in order for this to be deemed a success. Hey, Amarillo is supported by Wick Realty. Todd and I recorded this interview in my home studio, where I record pretty much everything related to this podcast. My family and I love our house, we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying a home, if you're selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, Talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. This episode of Hamrello is also made possible by U.S. Cleaners with three locations in Amarillo and Canyon. This local business has been family-owned for more than three decades. In fact, back in June of this year, I interviewed Taylor Van Valkenburg about her family business on this podcast. And over the years, they've developed a loyal, satisfied customer base. U.S. Cleaners offers pickup and delivery services. They work hard to stay up to date with the latest technology. And this company cleans everything from clothing to uniforms to bedding and tablecloths, residential and commercial. To learn more, visit uscleanersamarillo.com. That's uscleanersamarillo.com. Okay, I'm back with Todd McLeese. Todd, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas. And in addition to its vast collection, it just opened a new exhibit called Giants, Dragons, and Unicorns, which was organized by the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And so there's some really interesting artifacts there, a lot of hands-on stuff. Uh, I I saw the exhibit yesterday, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, You can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay. This question is is one I've been asking over the past year or so. It's when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I think it's a place that people in Amarillo think of anything as possible. And outside of Amarillo, they recognize that, you know, it may not be Silicon Valley. It doesn't have to be. But some really amazing innovation occurs here. Maybe in our core industries, maybe in adjacent industries, but there are some really cool things going on here. Yeah. One of, one of the things that it continues to be a conversation is some of the new businesses that are coming here. You know, the, the hard work and the success, the AEDC, mm-hmm. are businesses that need a workforce that's not necessarily an entry-level workforce. They need some skilled employees. And there's a lot of, you know, worry that we may not have those here. Are we going to bring them here? Are we going to train existing people? Like, and and that, you're part of those efforts. Many of those people aren't anywhere, right? So um, I was just reading some research yesterday about the number of degreed individuals that will be part of the workforce by 2030 and how it's a massive gap right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether you're talking about projects like CVMR or um, producer-owned beef or you're looking at existing businesses like Plains Dairy, they all need technicians and engineers, and that's only going to continue to increase. So if you're talking about, you know, 1,300 jobs at a new business or the 45 jobs at the existing business that they're having a hard time filling, that's the skills gap that we need to fill. Yeah. Some of those jobs are 
um, technician roles, and you can you can fill those gaps by uh, working with AC, working with Innovation Outpost to learn while you are on the job and take advantage of the um, the co-op relationship with with the employer where there may be some credit worthy work that's actually mm-hmm. going on as well. You don't have to settle in for three years, get a degree, and then figure out how you're doing and where the opportunities are. We can go much faster than that, and I think that's the primary goal here is to fill that gap as quickly as possible. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? <laughs> There's too many way underemployed people. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's got um, it's got a lot of opportunity that is untapped there's there's a significant uh, effort required to match the people who have either already have the skills or want to go get the skills. We talked earlier about you know, many people wake up, they just want to go do a solid day's work mm-hmm. in a stable job, in a stable industry, and go home. And the world will always have place for people like that, right? And it, it's honorable. And then there are people who wake up and wonder what, what else is possible. We need to tap into those people in order to fill that skills gap that we were just talking about. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? Steakhouses. High quality steakhouses. Okay, that's an interesting that's an interesting answer. <laughs> There's good steak in town, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but uh, I think when we think about uh, Global Food Hub and we think about some of the efforts in the beef industry and so forth, we can we can go a long way to making this a uh, more of a culinary center as well. Right. Like Kansas City has done, like Omaha has mm-hmm. done and so forth. We can be celebrating the, the beef and the other food products that are produced here. And we can do that in really fun and interesting ways with, with great steakhouses and great restaurants. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear people say pretty often that the best steak in Amarillo is the one that I cook in my backyard, you know, because we're working with the freshest beef possible. Right, exactly. You know, and, and everybody just thinks, yeah, well, I'll just make it myself. That, that, that's a different answer here than you might get in other places. Yeah. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? I usually compare it to uh, smaller cities in the, in the region. So if I'm at home in Milwaukee and talking to them, I, I compare it to sort of Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee, and it's about a quarter of a million people. And mm-hmm. similar, uh, maybe not the food industry, but a ma- uh, industrial manufacturing industry. And I talk about the people that I've met, the incredible momentum that I feel when I'm here, the difference that people are that people are actively looking for a way to make a difference in the community. And I think that's something that separates. So I, I spend a lot of energy talking about those kinds of things. All right. What's your favorite local mural? This is a new question. You're the first person I've asked this oh. question of. But I feel like we have enough now that I can I can bring this one out. Well, it has been. Uh, the blank spaces mural on uh, Polk Street, like Sixth and Polk, on the uh, the parking lot of the bar field. The, okay, the, uh, buffalo. Yeah, with the buffalo. Yeah, kind of the Art Deco look. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. It's got rich colors it's, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, however, we are uh, we were a part of Hoodoo Fest this year. We were a late entry at Innovation Outpost, so there's a mural now inside Innovation Outpost that was part of Hoodoo Fest in 22. So I think that's going to have to be my new favorite mural. Right. <laughs> who's the Who's the artist for that one? It's uh, Rabbi Towing. Okay. So he's an incredible muralist from L.A. 
And um, he was uh, it was a lot of fun interacting with him throughout the week, and uh, he put something really special yeah, together. I haven't seen that one in person yet, but yeah. I, I imagine I will very. I'll soon, show you so. a picture, and any, anybody's welcome to come over. It's one, in one of our community spaces. What's your local or your favorite local restaurant? OHMS. Okay. Um, I like the restaurant at the Barfield. There, there are a few others. I, I pretty, I stay in downtown because I typically downtown where I stay and I'm, uh, and I work on Polk street, right. At innovation outpost. So, but OHMS is a, is one of my favorites. And, and again, to me, that's a family owned spot. They're there seven days a week. Uh, they're making the ice cream in the, in the shop They're you know, so forth. So to and me, it was a just, legit downtown restaurant before there were any of the others. It's, oh, it's got yeah, a, I don't know a that lengthy history, history. Yeah. In that area. So, mm. um, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Well, I know this is political. I'm a palace guy, so I, <laughs> and again, palace. I don't think I'm, it has to be political. For some people, it people may make be it, it political. Is, <laughs> yeah, so I enjoyed uh, palace. Uh, um, palace on Polk is where I spend a lot of time, but um, but the other locations that on Georgia. Yeah, Georgia. Uh, yeah, so that one too. That's a good place okay. to hang out and with the people. And when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I visited Cadillac Ranch in August when my family, when my wife and young youngest daughter were down here. We we went to Cadillac Ranch and spent about an hour spray painting cars. So right, was it on your radar before you came here? Like, did you know of it? I did not know of it a couple of years ago, but and I had not visited it until uh, my family came down. But but it was a really nice way to spend an hour. Frankly, okay. it was fun. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I'd like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Between Square Mile and the Refugee Language Project, there are those are two programs that I think we need to be digging into a little bit further in terms of helping them scale their efforts and find ways to engage with the refugee communities because there are a lot of solutions that lie in mm-hmm. that in those communities. A lot of culture a lot of incredible food, but a lot of people who can help us fill some pressing employment gaps. I think you're right. When you, you talk about personal capacity and you have, you know, refugees coming here who know three or four languages and right. have these skill sets and that that drive is sometimes unique and they're bringing it with them. They just need the opportunity. That's right. The connectivity and the opportunity. Exactly. All right. Todd McLeese, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate I it. I really enjoyed it, Jason. Thanks for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Todd for the interview. You can learn more about Innovation Outpost at upskillamarello.io. That's upskillamarello.io. I want to say thanks to my sponsors, Wick Realty, Mind and Child's Parenting 101 course, U.S. Cleaners, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because people like you are listening to it every week. There's a lot of you. And I appreciate it. It's also made possible because of people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Heyamarello's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 268. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.